0: If you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in other locations across our city as well as those online who are not able to be with us in person today. It's really good to be together around God's Word, in God's worship, and I should add, it was really good to see so many of you in this room from all of our locations on Friday night for late night prayer, and particularly for those of you who were able to be there until a little after midnight, and you experienced what we did, There, there's something that happens that only comes after seeking God together for four hours that just can't be replicated in another way. And I I pray that the spirit and the zeal and the freedom in seeking God and shouting and praying and lifting our hands and being silent and bowing down on the ground that marks these Friday nights will work its way more and more into our Sunday mornings. Let's worship God fearfully and freely. And as a reminder, if someone prays or says something you agree with, you are free at any point to say amen. Amen. Or that's right, or yes, Lord, or yeah, any number of other appropriate Phrases. Uh, You're even free to shout it if you would like. So I love being in the church together encountering God. So I'd like to start today by asking you a question, and I'll put it up here on the screen. Do you want to be great? So I'm not talking about being great at this or that thing. I'm talking about your life. You want to be great in life. And I think for many of us, we're not quite sure how to answer that question. Especially if you ask us this publicly because, well, we don't want to be prideful or self-centered. And to say, yeah, I want to be great kind of seems is that prideful or self-centered. At the same time, to say no doesn't sound like that great of an answer either. For example, if you're a parent, do you want to be a great parent for your kids? Or do you want to be, ah, okay, parent for all of us who are children? Do you want to be great kids? Or do you want somebody to look at you and say, not a great kid? Think of our friendships. Do you want to be a mediocre friend or a great friend? Think about your profession. I don't want to be a lame pastor. I'm guessing you don't want to be lame at your job either. So do we want to be great at the vocation God has called us to? Or is that prideful? I want to contend today that God Made you for greatness. I want to show you in God's word that God wants you to be great. That God has made your life to be significant. And that God wants you to come to the end of your life and feel that you've spent your life in great ways. The problem is Sin has seriously warped our view of greatness and our desire for greatness in ways that lead to everything from self exaltation to surprisingly self degradation. A warped view of greatness can lead us to pride and can also lead us to despair and depression. And I want to show you today how Jesus redefines greatness and calls you to it. And not just calls you to it, but how Jesus empowers you to be what God has created you to be truly great. So, read with me in our next passage in the book of Mark, starting in chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there, it's talking about the disciples, and passed through Galilee. And he, talking about Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So we should pause Here and note, this is the second time in the book of Mark that we see Jesus predicting his suffering and his death and his resurrection. First time, if you look at the very end of chapter 8, verse 31. And I just want to point out a couple of important things. kind of, it's a side note here. These are not the main truths of the whole passage we're looking at, but they are truths that we see all over the Bible that are worth noting here. I'll put them on the screen. First, see divine sovereignty and human responsibility in these verses. So Jesus says, I am going to be delivered. So that's passive voice, something that's going to happen to Jesus, which begs the question, who is going to deliver Jesus? And some would say this is a reference to Judas who would betray Jesus. And he absolutely played a part in delivering Jesus over. But the Bible teaches that ultimately, God the Father was delivering over his son to die. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 in the same chapter says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. Romans 3.25 says, God has presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Acts chapter 4, verse 28, describes the cross as what God's hand and God's plan predestined to take place. Even John 3.16 makes clear, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die. But God was sovereign, ultimately in control over the death of Jesus. And at the same time, people were responsible. They will kill him. Judas will betray him. So just remember, whenever we think about sin and evil in the world, including the most evil act in all of history, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, people are responsible. Yet God is sovereign. God is always ultimately in control, even as we are making real, genuine choices for which we are responsible to him. This is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we see all over Scripture. It actually leads to the second thing We see here that I want to note, see divine love and human sinfulness on display in these verses. And specifically in this play on words. Did you notice it? Jesus says, the son of man, referring to himself, how he is God in the flesh, in human form as man, he's going to be delivered into the hands of what? Men. Mankind. So, see divine love, the Son of Man, that God would come to humanity, become man in Jesus, specifically to be killed by the men and women he comes to save. The Son of Man given into the hands of men. If you're visiting with us today or exploring Christianity, this is the most humbling and most happy news in all the world. That we as men and women have all sinned against God and deserve eternal separation and judgment before God. But God loves you and me so much that he gave his son, Jesus, to live the life we could not live, a life of no sin And then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that anyone, anywhere who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with God for eternal life. Life. Amen. We Amen. invite you Amen. to receive his divine love in your sinful life yep. if you have never done so today. So Jesus is telling his disciples here why he came, how much he loves them. But verse 32 says, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. And we're not told why they were afraid until we learn what was really on their minds in the next verse, 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What a scene. And it makes me think of all the times we have, well, I'm not even going to include you, all the times I, particularly as a kid, did something dumb or wrong, or dumb and wrong. And my mom or dad asked me a simple question about what I was doing. And as soon as the words came out of their mouth, I thought, oh, no. And I wanted to run and hide. So here, Jesus asks, so what were you guys talking about? And nobody says anything. They kept silent. Why? Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus has just told them he's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. That's, I think, worth talking about. And they're talking about who's, who's greater in our group. And here we see how sin corrupts our quest for greatness. Let's just put ourselves in these disciples' shoes and imagine how the conversation may have gone. In light of what Jesus just shared, specifically about his death, maybe they weren't listening to the last part, maybe they're wondering, okay, if he's gonna die, who's next in line in this group? Peter, James, and John had just been with Jesus at the Transfiguration at the beginning of this chapter, so in their minds, they were obviously at the top of the list. And Peter is the one who confessed Jesus as the Messiah at the end of the previous chapter, so he may have been saying, guys, it's it's clearly me. To which James and John, known as sons of thunder, may have reminded Peter that not long after that confession, Jesus called him Satan. Meanwhile, the other disciples are thinking, well, you guys are always running your mouths. We're out here working. And Jesus is overhearing all of this, this argument about who is the greatest. And this scene, and specifically this phrase, reveals, it exposes the sin-corrupted quest for greatness, not just in them, but in us. In at least two ways. And I really want to encourage us to think, not just about how we see the sinful distortion in these disciples, but how we see this sinful distortion in our lives. In at least two ways. One, we compare ourselves with others. Notice the emphasis is not not on who's great, but on who's the greatest. It's a word that requires comparison, right? In order to be the greatest, others must be less great. Do you see this? How comparison is at the root of their sinful quest for greatness? And maybe ours? It's what I've mentioned before that C.S. Lewis calls the great sin in mere Christianity. The one vice, he writes, of which no person in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when you see it in someone else and which we are most unconscious of in ourselves. And the vice is pride. And C.S. Lewis argues that pride is essentially competitive, competitive by its very nature. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having, having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Makes sense, doesn't it? You may think you're proud because you're talented, but when you meet someone who's more talented than you, you're not really proud anymore. Suddenly you don't find the pleasure you once had in your talents because your pleasure was not in your talents. It was in having more talent than the next person and being above the rest. And in the opposite direction, pride also reveals itself in the despair it comes when you feel like you're below the rest. The despair that creeps in when you think, I'm not as good as them. How easy it, is it for us to look at others' lives, whether in person or on social media, and think, they have what I want. I wish I was as fill in the blank as them. They're a better person than me, parent than me, student than me, a better athlete than me. They're smarter, better looking, more talented, more put together, more, and it goes on and on. This constant comparison of ourselves with others. We compare ourselves with others and we crave approval from others. Now, I want to be careful here because this is not all bad. It's good, for example, for a child to want to please their parents, or a student to want to please a teacher, or a wife to desire affirmation from her husband, and vice versa, in all these situations and many others. But notice what's happening here in Mark 9 they are arguing with one another about who is the greatest. They're not sitting back thinking, I know I'm the greatest. Not even gonna talk to these guys about it. That would obviously be prideful, but they're taking it to another level. They, They want other people to acknowledge that they are the greatest. And Jesus warns against this over and over and over again. I think about our Bible reading in Matthew right now as a church, how Jesus constantly warns against doing acts of righteousness. Giving, praying, fasting, in order to be seen by others. Notice the sinful, subtle, significant distinction here. When it's not enough to be great, you want to be known as great. Giving, praying, fasting, Jesus says, absolutely, be great at all those things. But resist the temptation in you to want other people to know how great you are at those things. So you put this together, and we have an equation here for worldly greatness. Worldly greatness is superiority above others plus acclaim from others. If we just look at this equation, we can think together of countless examples of this in the world, this picture of greatness in so many arenas in life, in sports, in business, in whatever. And just so you know, this is true even in church. Who's in the highest position, in the largest church, who sells the most books, who's Looked at with the highest esteem. That was part of the religious culture in the first century. This quest to be in the highest position with the highest esteem. This is clearly what these disciples desired. And we would miss the point if we didn't, each of us, examine our own hearts and lives and ask, in what ways do you and I compare ourselves with others? and crave approval from others in ways that reveal a sin corrupted quest for greatness in our lives. So what does Jesus do? How, how does Jesus address this? And not just address it, but how does Jesus change this in us? Listen to what he does and says in Mark nine thirty-five. He sat down and called the 12 and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And before we think about what Jesus just did and said, let's make sure to notice what he didn't do or say. Jesus did not criticize these disciples for desiring greatness, significance. Think about it. These are men made in the image of a great God. And you look, not one time anywhere in Jesus' teaching does he ever criticize anyone for desiring true greatness, true significance in their lives. Instead, what Jesus is doing here is he is radically redirecting their desire for greatness. Jesus does not crush or even criticize our quest for greatness. Instead, Jesus redefines our quest for greatness. By calling his disciples and you and me to be great in what matters to God. If anyone would be first, great, significant, noble, excellent, then he must be last of all and servant of all. And this is not isolated teaching from Jesus. This is repeated over and over and over again in all four Gospels in the Bible from Mark 10, which we'll look at in a few weeks when we get to that part of our journey through Mark, to what we just read this week in our church's Bible reading in Matthew 20 to Luke 22 to John 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he redefines greatness with a towel and a basin. Jesus says to be great is to be selfless in serving others. To be last of all. Don't put yourself before anyone else. Put everyone else before you. That's last of all. Be the servant of all. The word for servant there means to wait on tables, to take the low position, do the menial tasks of a servant for all. And to illustrate this, Jesus takes a child. And it's interesting, the Aramaic word for servant, Jesus would have likely been speaking in Aramaic here. The Aramaic word for servant would have been the same as the word for child, We need to realize children were seen as pretty insignificant in that day. Unimportant. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But Jesus calls a little boy in, stands him in front of the disciples. They look at this lowly little boy as Jesus then takes him into his arms. And now the picture is becoming really clear really fast. This seemingly insignificant child is included in the all. Greatness is being last behind this child, putting his interests above your own. Greatness is serving this child, waiting on this child. And the reason I phrase Jesus teaching this way, be selfless in serving others, is because the point, at least part of the point, Jesus seems to be making here, is that you serve people who can't or don't pay you back. You serve people that doesn't help you to serve. Jesus knows we're all eager to serve people when it helps us, or even people who are particularly important to us. If you were to meet a hero of yours or someone who's famous in some way, you might go out of your way to do something for them. What an honor. But are you just as delighted to do that for someone very unimportant, the seemingly insignificant? This is. Is greatness. You see how Jesus is turning this definition of greatness upside down? Worldly greatness is about superiority above others. Jesus is saying, treat everybody like they're superior to you, even or especially the seemingly insignificant. And worldly greatness is about getting approval from others. But Jesus is saying, particularly with this illustration of a child, serve people. Who won't make a big deal about all you're doing for them. In fact, they may not even acknowledge it at all, which is the point, Jesus says. Follow this in verse 37 you serve all in my name. A crystal clear indication. This is selfless service of others. You're not doing this in your own name. You're doing this in the name of someone else, in Jesus' name. And then keep going. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Amen. So Jesus says to receive, welcome a child, to serve a child like this is to receive Not welcome, not just a child, but me. And whoever receives, welcomes me, receives not just me, but him who sent me. Wow, follow this. This is so not the way we think. It's definitely not the way we talk. And it's not what we might even expect Jesus to say here. Jesus is not saying serve children or the seemingly insignificant for their sake. Jesus is obviously not saying, do this for your own sake. But he's also not saying, do this for their sake. This is the way we would probably talk. Jesus is not saying, serve children for the sake of children, for the sake of mankind, for the sake of the future of our country. No, Jesus is saying, serve children, welcome children, receive children, because you want to receive me. And not just me. Serve children, because you want to receive and serve God. This is huge. This is greatness. Be selfless in serving others and be satisfied with having God. Serve others, not for your sake and not for their sake, ultimately for God's sake. Serve others because you want God. Serve others because you want to receive more of God, yes. the one who is the greatest. Yes. This is so yes. transformative. Like contrast this with worldly greatness. Specifically how we talked about craving approval from others. Don't do it, Jesus says. Don't serve to be seen. Serve unseen because you're satisfied with having and knowing and enjoying and exalting God. It's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6 when he told us to give and pray and fast in secret, not for others' approval and recognition. Jesus said, when you give, pray and fast in secret, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Be satisfied with having God as your reward. And in the process, be free. Be free from the constant quest for, craving for approval from others. You do not have to live enslaved to what others say or think about you. You have the affirmation of God. So fix your gaze on him and keep your gaze on him. And be content with him. Be content with having and knowing and loving and bringing glory to God. Don't seek or settle for the approval of others when your reward is found in relationship with the God who's the greatest above all. So here is the equation for true greatness. True greatness is lowly service on earth plus glory to God in heaven. I want you just to look at that equation. And it makes sense, doesn't it, on every level. Lowly service, giving your life, putting others before you, particularly those who can do the least for you, in a way that brings glory to God above you. Think about a passage that just so happens to be in our church's Bible reading plan today. In Matthew 22, what does Jesus say is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself lowly service on earth love your neighbor neighbor as yourself glory to God in heaven love him with everything you have and isn't this equation the gospel is this not Jesus Philippians chapter 2 what we walk through at Christmas Jesus being in very nature God Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for undeserving sinners, lowly service on earth. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. Lowly service on earth, glory to God in heaven, Jesus is true greatness. So I come back to the question in your life. Do you want to be great? And I hope you hear God saying through his word to you right now, I want this for you. I made you for greatness. But not the way the world defines it. Not through comparing yourself with others and craving approval from others. God is saying, I sent my son to free you from those things. You do not have to live comparing yourself with everybody else and craving approval from anybody else. When God has created you for real, true greatness, and not just created you for this, but when you put your trust in him, Jesus is Lord of your life. His spirit dwells in you. And he empowers you to live like this, to be selfless in serving others. To be a servant to all, even the seemingly insignificant. As you are satisfied, as you experience supernatural joy and reward in relationship with the God whose greatness knows no end. So before we close, with this question before us, I want to specifically affirm you and challenge you in a way that I hope just gives us a moment to let God through his word now by his Holy Spirit apply it in our hearts and lives. And I know there are so many people listening right now. I don't presume to be able to, know how it applies in every single person's life but just I was just praying through okay how might this apply across this group gathered right now so may the holy spirit apply this word in affirming and challenging ways specifically in light of this picture of a child in mark chapter 9 i hope That parents today, that you are affirmed in the countless things you do selflessly for your children. And I I would add even beyond that, and I would say to children of any age, and in particular, single parents, parents of children with special needs, foster parents, And I could go on with other especially challenging parenting situations on top of normally challenging parenting situations. You know the ways you're serving your family right now. And hear God saying he knows and he sees and he affirms you as great. Hear that. Feel that. Be encouraged by God today. His affirmation of you. A mom or a dad. And there are so many other examples I could go through, whether it's those of you who serve in children's or student or access special needs ministries in the church, in our community, or beyond children. Those of you who serve in many different ways, all your work for justice on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the abused, the displaced refugees, orphans, widows, and all the ways you serve selflessly day in and day out in your vocation for the good of society, In all the ways that you are giving sacrificially and quietly to the church for the glory of God here and among the nations. Just consider right now any and every way That by God's grace in you, you are serving others as you're satisfied in God. And be affirmed by God right now. This is great. By the power and the grace of God in you, you are great. So keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good in your life. Pursue true greatness in all of these ways and more. Which then leads to the challenge. I exhort you to also take a moment and consider any ways that God by His Spirit may be leading you to pursue greatness more in your life. And maybe that means starting by confessing the ways you compare yourself with others and crave approval from others or to the extent that you're doing any of the things I just mentioned in your life or family or work or wherever, maybe this means checking your motives to make sure you are serving selflessly and you're truly satisfied in simply having God. I pray that God will cleanse and transform your motives. I would ask that you pray for me in that way, that I would be delivered from comparison with others or craving approval from others. Pray that my life would not be marked by how, what size church I pastor, how many books I write, that I would pastor, write, love, serve this church, my family, others selflessly with a deep desire to decrease while others increase to the glory of Jesus. I was at Clint Clifton's memorial service yesterday. It was so powerful to hear. Everyone from his wife and kids to a church family and church partner, church planters all around the world say how he lived to serve and see them increase out of the overflow of his love for God. It was a beautiful picture of true greatness. And for all of us, maybe the challenge from this word today means taking some steps toward greatness that we're not taking right now. Maybe God is calling you today to give more sacrificially and quietly to the church or to do justice in a specific way for the poor, the oppressed, the abused, the displaced, refugees, orphans, widows. We could continue on for for people who can't or may not pay you back? Or maybe God is calling you to move to a place in the world where the gospel is not yet gone. Just take time this week to seriously ask God, How are you calling me to greatness in new ways to selflessly serve others? And just see what he says. In light of Jesus' clear emphasis in this passage on how greatness involves serving children, we would be remiss if we didn't challenge one another to specifically consider ways God may be calling us to serve children, to be great parents. For those of us who are parents, how is God calling us today to be better in our love and selflessness toward our children? with his promise in us to enable us to do that. And if greatness, according to Jesus, involves serving children, then it seems to reason that a church full of followers of Jesus would be overflowing with volunteers and children's and student ministries, right? Overflowing with people who don't feel guilty so they're doing this, but actually are eager to serve children and all the more so children with special needs. I want to challenge members across this church, followers of Jesus, to consider how you can serve children and students in our church. If you want to be great, consider caring for toddlers or teaching the Bible to teenagers I've heard it said in different church conferences and places, there are so many gifted, talented people in the church. They're successful in business. And that's certainly true in this church family. So it's said, we need to come up with more ways for them to serve than just changing diapers or teaching kids. And I agree in one sense, there are many ways that people who are successful in the world can and should use their gifts for the building up of the church and the spread of the gospel in the world. Yes. But the moment we think it's too low or menial to serve children is the moment we've lost sight of what it means to follow Jesus in the first place. At least here at Tyson's right now, we're having to turn away children in our children's ministries because we don't have enough volunteers. And simply put, brothers and sisters in Christ, this should not be so among us. May children's and student ministries at all of our locations be overflowing with followers of Jesus, eagerly and selflessly serving the next generation. And finally, I should add, I don't think it's a coincidence that we would be in this text on this exact day when 50 years ago, January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in our country, leading to the death of millions upon millions of children in the years that followed. And obviously there's been a lot of discussion about that over this last year and changes and increased debate. I was speaking at a Stand for Life conference downtown this week and many marched for life in our city we clearly still have a long way to go in serving children in the womb and their moms and their dads because the reasons people want to have and have abortions are still there. So let us serve, work selflessly, for just laws and leaders and policies and practices that protect children in the womb and provide for women and men in poverty that address housing, healthcare, education and economic challenges among parents in need. Let's foster and adopt children in need as we come alongside families in need, and let's do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you want to be great yes. based on what we've just heard and seen in God's word? I hope the answer to that question in your heart is a resounding yes. 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 Because God has made you to be great in otherworldly Ways. Amen. So let's throw aside comparison with others and craving approval from others in this world. And let's serve selflessly in Jesus' name out of the overflow of satisfaction in our relationship with the one and only great God. Amen. Will you bow your heads with me? all across this room and other locations, others watching online, is to pause the busyness of our lives and be quiet before God and to ask first and foremost, do you know this one and only great God? Are you in relationship with Him? Because you have placed your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to reconcile you to him. And if the answer to that question in your heart is not a resounding yes, I invite you today, this moment, make this the moment when you say to God, yes, I want to be all you've created me to be. And I know I've sinned against you. Just pray this to God in your heart. I know I've sinned against you, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. And today I turn from my sin and I put my trust in your love for me and you as the Lord of my life. And you pray that, express that to God. He forgives you of your sin. And he fills you with his spirit. Draws you in relationship with him. And so for all who are in relationship with him, who have his spirit inside of you, can we just pray together, God, make us great in all the ways that matter most pray that over every single person. Then the sound of my voice, even as I pray that over my own life, God, help us to live free from competition with others, craving approval from others. I pray for contentment in selflessly serving others and satisfaction. And simply having you as our reward. And I say that, simply having you. What a reward. God, we praise you that you're our reward. We don't want any other reward. We don't need any other reward. We have you. We love you. We glorify you. So help us. Help us to be last of all and servant of all in our lives, in our families, and our workplaces, and in the city, among the nations, in ways, help us to do lowly service on earth in your name, Have the overflow of your spirit in us in ways that bring all glory to your name. In Jesus' name, we pray this. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Amen.